Good morning. It's wonderful to be with all of you. Can you hear me? Is this on? Okay. Well, it's uh, great to be back here at Providence. It's, uh, I get an email or a text message from Vince every six months or so to come and fill in, so it's great to be back here. Um, those of you who don't know me, I'm Noah Trask, and uh, married with uh, two children, a daughter who's three and a half and a son who's a year and a half, um, and that's uh, been a, a lovely part of life. I'm in my final year of seminary and, or, um, and under care of the Susquehanna Valley Presbytery, so as you uh, think of me over the next year or so, please pray that I would finish my studies well and pray for discernment as we consider what's next for us after uh, seminary is completed. So as we continue in worship, let's turn our attention to the letter um, of First Peter, and we'll begin there in chapter 1, starting in, in verse 13, and we'll read down to chapter 2, uh, ending in verse 3 there. So chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. Now let's give ourselves to the reading of God's word. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy. Yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for in sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which has been preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, that though we are small, we are dear to you, uh, that you draw us close this morning, that you want us to know you. You do not hide yourself in shadows at this moment, but instead you reveal yourself gloriously to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray that you would give us faith if we do not have it, that you would strengthen our faith if we have it, that we would see Jesus more clearly and more beautifully than we ever have before. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Peter writes this letter to the churches in Asia, which is um, basically about where modern-day Turkey is, he's writing to believers in the first-century context who are uh, perhaps facing persecution of various kinds, but certainly facing suffering. 
And as you read through the letter, you get this sense that the believers there were somewhat surprised at the reality of suffering after coming to, to faith in Christ. We don't know what exactly they were expecting when they came to, to faith, but there was some sort of expectation that their lives in an experiential, um, present-day sense would be perhaps better than it was. But as we read the Gospels, we see time and time again that the Lord uh, promises good things, but he also does promise that we will suffer and we'll face persecutions of various kinds. And so as these believers are wrestling with this, Peter is, is writing to them to encourage them, to, to point them towards Jesus. And what's interesting is that as they're suffering, he doesn't initially address their suffering directly. His solution to them, his answer to them in their suffering, as they're crying out in pain, as they're, they're wondering why they're, they're suffering in the ways that they are, his response is to point them back to what Jesus has done for them. He reminds them what they have inherited because of what Jesus has done. He reminds them what they have received as a result of what Jesus' blood had bought. And as we... As I was reading this this week, I, I had a conversation last Sunday. Um, our church is downtown in Hanover, so it's, it's right, right off the square. And we have folks that, that come and go from various backgrounds. And, and after church, I was out on the sidewalk, and, and a man walked up to me and, and started asking me the easiest question ever to answer, which is the, the problem of evil. Why do we suffer? Why is there pain in the world? If God is all good, all wise, all knowing, all powerful, why is there suffering? And I, I, it seems that he had some sort of Christian background. He seemed to know the Bible to some extent. But he was, the crux of his issue was, if Jesus died for me, if God is making all things new, if God's at work in the world, why is everything so painful? Why is life just seemingly pointless? And so in that, I could, I could feel the pain and the struggle that he was really struggling with was this lack of sense of, of purpose in life, a sense of he wasn't centered in what Jesus had done, but was instead um, looking for that. And Peter's response answers that question, and you and I often ask that questions, that, that same question, don't we? We wonder why do we suffer, why are we experiencing the things we're experiencing, and sometimes we are even tempted to despair. And in the midst of that, we're forgetting ultimately what Jesus has done for us. We're forgetting that Jesus has bought us with his blood, that he's made us sons and daughters, that we have inherited something that is um, imperishable and undefiled and something that will not fade away, something that is reserved in heaven for us, as Peter says in, in verse 4 of chapter 1. And so Peter is recentering these believers on this inheritance. And sometimes when we're in this place of wondering why suffering exists, why death's a reality, why sickness affects us, we get in a place where we go back to, to the man I spoke with on the sidewalk, where he was kind of, basically he had this dichotomy of, okay, Jesus died and, and did what he did, but then in his mind that was only a future reality. He couldn't see any present effect from Jesus' work. 
He had, didn't have a category for that in his mind. And so often I think you and I have that same relationship with the salvific work of Christ, what Christ has done for us. We think of it as a purely future thing, that Jesus died and then he's coming again. And there's the, in the final reality of the new Jerusalem where we'll live before the face of God in perfect blessedness and peace forevermore. But there's this middle part that we kind of don't know what to deal with sometimes. And we wonder what God is doing. And what God is doing, what he has already done through Jesus, is that he's made us holy and he's making us holy. Right? In Hebrews, it tells us that, that we've been made holy. And in 1 Corinthians, we're being made holy. And so we're in this process of, of our salvation is a reality that is already in existence, but it is also a reality that is ongoing through our lives. And to be made holy is to be made like God because God is holy. So as we inherit salvation, it's to inherit being like God at the end of the day. And so this is what Peter points them to, is the substance of their inheritance, which is that we will become like God, that we will be holy. And as a result of that, we can live a holy life. And so there in verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we live a holy life, we do so preparing our minds for action, keeping a sober spirit, fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And all these things are connected and, and are really building off of what Paul, Peter just addressed, which is the inheritance that Christ bought for us with his blood. As we prepare our minds for actions, for action, we're, we're bringing our thoughts under control. As I think about this, uh, the, Vince's illustration of the train always pops into my brain. You know, the mind, the will, and the motions, right? Whatever we think leads to what we do, inevitably. Um, our, our thoughts lead to action. And so if our thoughts are not fixed on Jesus, if our thoughts are not fixed on, on the reality of who we are in him, that he has made us holy, then inevitably our lives will stray. We'll begin to wonder, what's the point? We'll begin to, to sit in the suffering that we experience and feel as though there's no escape and there's no hope for us. We must prepare our minds for action, to live as God's holy people, to live as his children in this world, even though we suffer, even though there's, there's much that we are confused about, but we know what is true is that we have an imperishable, unfading inheritance with God. In the process of this, keep sober in spirit. It's to, to be serious about what we're doing, to have a sense of intentionality, to have a sense of, of forward-looking um, emphasis in our lives, that we're looking ahead to what Christ is doing and what he's already done, and the final reality of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation, that we are holy and we are becoming holy at the same time. So it's living our lives with seriousness, not um, just kind of saying, you know, it's, it's all good, Jesus bought everything and, and I'm good, but it's, it's saying, I'm a child of God. God has transformed me. He's made me holy, and therefore, I can live a life of serious intentionality. I don't have to live as though there's no point. I don't have to live as though there's no purpose, but I can live knowing that the ultimate reality, the ultimate purpose has been provided for me in Jesus Christ, which is relationship with God, and I can pursue God. I can pursue relationship with God freely, knowing what Jesus has done. And notice all these things, preparing our mind for action, keeping sober in mind is followed by fixing our hope on the grace of Christ. The foundation for 
preparing our minds to the foundation for keeping sober is the grace of Jesus Christ. Recalling what he has done, resting in that reality. And this reality means that we can be obedient children, not conform to the former lusts which were ours in our ignorance, but like the Holy One who called us, we can be holy also in all our behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this is all a reality because as we receive this inheritance through Christ, it's an inheritance to be sons and daughters of God. It's to enter into a familial relationship with God, to enter into a covenant family with God. Because outside of Christ, we are alienated. We have no relationship. We have no connection to God. But through Christ, we are brought close. Through Christ, we, we gain a new family. We gain a new familial identity. And this is how God works throughout all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, you see him working in families. As, as Peter quotes Leviticus here, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is language that God used with the people of Israel in Leviticus to emphasize not only that they ought to live as he lives, to be as he is, but to emphasize that he is their God and they are his people, that they are in this relationship with one another. And this relationship that they possess, as we think of Abraham as he cuts the covenant with with the Lord, as he splits the animals in two and the blood runs down the center, the Lord appears as though a lamp and he, he walks through the blood, even though he is the greater of the two parties, establishing that he is the one who will guarantee the covenant between him and Abraham and his people. And so when we see that, is that God is always the one that is interceding into our lives and into this world to draw us into relationship with him. And he's doing the same thing here. And this is what Peter is reminding them. He said, be holy as you are holy because God has brought you to himself. Through the blood of Jesus, you have an inheritance. It is yours. Be holy because you have become holy through Jesus. Be holy because you are a son and a daughter of God. You have received all that is God's in Jesus. As Paul reminds us, we have received all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's true. I think holiness is probably a part of that list. We've received what is God's. We've received holiness. And so let's live in that because we are children of God. And I think we struggle with this because we, we see the standard of God. Maybe you've read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, um, or you've done a deep dive in Leviticus or in the Sermon on the Mount, and you see the standard of God for holiness, which is absolute, unerring perfection. And you read that, and you feel the, the pressure of the law. You feel the condemnation of the reality that you are sinful. You have a reality of sin in your daily life that is inescapable. And you wonder, how can I be holy as he is holy? If his standard for holiness is absolute perfection, how is it that I can be holy in that way? It's because Jesus has made us that way. Jesus has made us holy. We are holy not because of anything within us, but we are holy solely because of what Jesus has done. And that as Jesus dies and saves us, as he justifies us, he forgives our sins, but he also gives us his righteousness. So when God the Father looks upon us, he does not see our sin, he does not see our, our imperfections, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. But in that same process, 
He's transforming us actively, day by day, making us more and more like God. And so we're holy because we are holy. And what, uh, what, uh, what Jesus has done to us to transform us, that holiness will continually come out of us. So we think of the, the parable of the two trees the, in Matthew 7, where there's one tree that bears good fruit and there's another tree that bears bad fruit. We'll know um, whether somebody's a believer by the fruit that they exhibit. This is an interesting reality because Sarah's grandparents have, a, have some fruit trees in their backyard and her brothers brought, brought a tree to them many years ago. It was a, just a little sapling and, and they planted that and they said it was an apple tree. They got it at some, some school events and then along the line they planted a peach tree next to it and several peach trees and you know, they watched them grow and the peach tree eventually bears fruit and it bears so much fruit that the, the, tree, the, the branches of the tree are cracking under the weight of how many peaches are there. So they're having to prop up that. And they're looking at this tree next to the peach trees. And year after year, they're like, oh, well, maybe it's next year. Next year it'll bear fruit. Next year it'll bear fruit. And then as they go along, they start to wonder if it's actually an apple tree. And they come to find out that it's not even an apple tree. And so they're waiting for this thing to bear fruit, and it never did. And I think that's a, that's a very real-world way of connecting those two, two stories. But it shows us that, that sometimes we're worried about holiness to a navel-gazing way, that we're, we're worried that, oh, I need to produce fruit in order to be in the kingdom. I need to produce fruit in order to be a child of God. But it's actually reversed. Because we're children of God, we're going to produce fruit. Because we're children of God, we are holy and we're becoming holy. And this is the ultimate inheritance that we've received in Christ. This is a reason for us to rejoice, that we can be holy. We, can, we don't have to wait until the eschaton. We don't have to wait till the final day. We don't have to wait till the new Jerusalem to be holy. We can be holy right now because Jesus has already done that for us. And we can relax into it. We can rest in Jesus as we work. We can rest and work at the same time. That sounds very contradictory, doesn't it? But we can rest and we can work at the same time because Jesus has has said it is finished. He has done it. And that gives us the freedom to fail forward, so to speak. That as we live our lives and as we find ourselves deficient in, in, our, in our sin, we rest in Jesus and we do the next right thing. We move forward in the direction of holiness, in the direction of our Father. And a result of our status as children, if we address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, we can conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. When we read verses like that, we, hear the, we read that word fear, and we start to get a little uncomfortable. Because when we read the word fear, especially in this season of Halloween and horror movies and things of that nature, we're used to, okay, if you're afraid of something, you're running in the opposite direction of it, right? You're usually not addressing that thing in a familial, loving way and wanting to draw close to the thing that you're fearing. And what fear is, is, is trying to, to get at in this passage is, is reverence, a reverential respect, reverential fear of God and his power and who he is. Um, I'm reminded of the, the C.S. Lewis, Lewis scene in The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and the children ask Mr. Beaver, um, is he safe about Aslan? Is Aslan safe? Mr. Beaver says, oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good. It's reality where God is our Father, he is perfectly good towards us. 
perfectly gracious, he's perfectly loving and kind, yet he is still the impartial judge of all things. He is still the possessor of all power. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable. And so as we draw close to God as children, that doesn't mean that we, we lose our respect and our deference for him. It doesn't mean that we lose any uh, accountability to him. It doesn't mean that we lose any need to love and serve him with our lives. But instead, we ought to live knowing that he is our father, and we should live out of thankfulness to him. Right? Most of us in our lives, as, I've, as I observe most people, many of us have a desire to please our parents, um, even if we don't realize that we're trying to please our parents. I see this with folks who, who are in sporting events or pursuing something in the arts or something in academics or even in your job, and over time you start to kind of wonder, and people even start to express it, where they feel like they're still trying to please their parents, even though their parents may be dead or it might be decades after they've been out of the house. Um, there's something innate in us is that we want to please those in authority over us. We want to please our parents, and sometimes that's a good thing. Other times it can be a little pathological and not helpful. But as we feel that towards the Lord, that's a, that's a good thing. We ought to want to serve and please him and live as he would have us live. Uh, John Owen, in his work of Temptation, uh, which is also in volume six of his collected works, for those of you who have that or are nerdy and would like to know that, um, he talks about the fact that um, Peter is warning, his, his perception of this verse is that Peter is warning against self-confidence, which leads to temptation and sin, which leads away from God rather than, than to God. It's recognizing that we are not all-sufficient, that in and of ourselves we cannot save, our, save us, we cannot uh, be holy through our own work, but that we must instead rely on the Lord and thus live in um, reliance upon him. But as we, we do all these things, we recognize that God is judge and that God does bring judgment against sin. Right? Jesus died not for fun. Jesus died for a reason. Right? Mercy and grace necessitate the reality of sin, the reality of wrongdoing. For Jesus to die for our sake, to pay for our sins, to, to die in our stead means that, he, that we did something that needed judgment. And yet we did not bear our judgment, but instead Jesus bore the punishment, the judgment that was reserved for us on the cross. That's where Peter continues. We can conduct ourselves with reverential fear of God, knowing that we were not redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The thing that has redeemed us, so, so we have this one stage where, where we're looking at God with, with a sense of fear, a sense of trepidation, a sense of respect at his glory, his majesty, his judgment, and Peter establishes that as a reality, but then he turns our attention 
to, but you have been redeemed, not by something that's going to, to waste away. Jesus didn't come before the Father with a big pot of gold and say, here, I'm paying off you know, their debts for now, but then they might accumulate more later. But no, by his perfect, spotless, blameless blood, the only blood that could wipe away our sins, which is imperishable and undefiled. That's what we've been bought with. And so therefore, we can stand with confidence in our relationship with God. We can enter in and, and the fear of God does not need to overtake us because in Jesus, the punishments and the just judgments of God have been met for our sake. Because in verse 20, it says this, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Jesus appeared for your sake. And maybe this morning you don't, don't believe or you're wrestling with your belief. Would you believe in Jesus because he appeared to satisfy the judgment of God for you? And he's welcoming you into the family of God. He's, he's coming out to you and offering that to you. Would you come and believe? And many of us, as we wrestle in our lives as Christians, that's hard for us to remember and to believe each day. Paul David Tripp calls us um, uh, all amnesiacs. Sometimes we see this picture of God, we see the beauty of the gospel, we see the reality of his glory, and then we turn and we sin and we forget about it. We forget who he is, we forget what he's done. But we so often also need to be reminded of the, the glory of God, his just judgments, his power, but also that those things for us were, were um, placed on Christ. And that we no longer must fear condemnation, but can come close, knowing that Jesus has paid for our sins. So would you believe this morning? He was foreknown before the foundations of the world. It's appeared now for our sake. I know I might be blowing up the, the outline a little bit, but I'm sorry. Um, as we get into the, the next section, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The reality of the work of the truth, which is the gospel, as you read through the, the New Testament, you'll see knowledge, the truth, the gospel. Often those, those words are used interchangeably by the New Testament authors to refer to the work of Christ, what Jesus has done for our sake. And so since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls, that means to, as, as you have received Jesus by faith, your souls have been purified for a specific purpose. That's for sincere love of the brethren. So as a result of what Jesus has done, as a result of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, as we live a holy life, as we live in reverential fear of God, we can live a life of love. In this context, he's focusing very specifically towards loving other Christians. Sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Because of the gospel, we've been born again. Not to perish, but to live forever. This is the reality for us. That we ought to be united in that reality because as we individually we live in a very individual individualistic culture um, so this is hard for us sometimes to think of our communal relation to each other but as we inherit salvation from jesus individually 
we are then inseparably connected to everybody else who has received that same inheritance. We've been made brothers and sisters. We've been united in a way that will never fade. If we've been united by this thing that is imperishable and unfading and undefiled, then certainly we will be more connected to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ than we are connected with anybody else in this world. Um, As he quotes Isaiah 40, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word which was preached to you. The reality is in our lives we experience um, fading all the time. We're told in our lives that, that our work, that our families, that our money, that our hobbies... Um, All these things should define who we are. And that those are the things that predominantly connect us with other people. And in some ways, experientially, that ends up being the case, right? When you spend most of your time at work, you end up getting pretty connected with those people who you work with or at school or uh, at whatever hobby you might be in. But inevitably, as our lives continue, what happens with our work? Eventually, we retire. Or eventually, we can't work, and that fades. Eventually, our kids grow up and they leave the house, And then we're kind of left kind of like, oh, I don't know what to do right now. And so there's a sense where much of the things in our lives, there's there's a fading away point for those things. The thing that will never fade is the fact that we are children of God. And as we're connected with other children of God who are are receiving that same unfading inheritance, then we ought to be more connected. We ought to love more fervently those who are in Christ's church. And yet, sometimes when we look around, when we look at Twitter, which is, or X, Twitter, you know, X formerly known as Twitter, um, we see Christians that are nasty to each other. We look around even York and even in our own denomination, and we see Christians that are are fighting and they're slandering and they're gossiping, and, and they're not loving. This is something that Peter is addressing, probably because the Christians back in the first century were struggling with that same reality, the same sense of connectivity to one another, the same sense of needing to love one another because of their shared inheritance in Jesus. So Peter is encouraging us that we ought to love each other. We ought to not give up gathering with one another, but instead we should gather and we should love, we should provide for each other, we should care for each other's needs, lift each other up when is necessary. Uh, my father, as many of you know, was diagnosed with ALS when I was in middle school and um, had it for about 10 years. And um, during that time was the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, if you recall that. And the one during that event, we ended up needing to, to raise significant funds to care for my dad. And so we had a giant Ice Bucket Challenge in my mom's driveway. And so we, we kind of put it out on Facebook and we had friends and family come and and, and we probably had about 100 people packed in my mom's driveway. And we got it on video, did all that stuff. And we all dumped buckets of ice water on our heads at the same time. And, um, and through that, we were able to, through that and other things, we were able to raise the funds we needed to care for my dad. But there's a reality where the majority of those folks were, were believers. And they showed up. Not even primarily financially, but they showed up. They were there when, when we called, they came. And, and many of you, as you think of your lives and as you think of your experience in the church, you, you know that even if you had an imperfect church experience, 
there were people that still came and loved you, came and cared for you. And Peter is encouraging us to have that same love and affection for believers everywhere, um, whether it be in our church or in other places. And I find that for, for myself, this tempers my own negativity around things in the church. Sometimes it's discouraging to see the sin that, that is, is there in the church, in myself and in other believers. But this tempers me to love the church, to love believers. Um, and I think it ought to do the same for you. And as a result of these things, we can set aside sin and enjoy the gospel. Because really the way that we are to love each other, the way that we are to live in this, this, this community of shared inheritance is to set aside um, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Um, as he goes into in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 1. And as I think Peter highlights these things, because these things destroy relationship, and they destroy relationship. As you look at um, uh, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, these are all forms of lying, right? You have general lying, then you have hypocrisy, lying about yourself to make yourself look better. You know, downplaying your own sin and saying one thing and doing another thing, and then slander, lying about other people. Then you also have malice and envy, these things that, that urge us to control other people, to control reality, to try to get what is not ours through our own means. As you think of these things, these are the predominant ways that relationships blow up in our personal lives, in the church. So Peter is warning strongly against these things because they destroy community. They destroy relationships, families. So put these things away. And instead of, and sometimes we're, we're attracted to that, right? Sometimes we're, we're, we're attracted to slander and gossip. We want to huddle around those things. Sometimes we get really angry about something and we want to like, be unified around anger. Or maybe we all really want something. You know, maybe there's... A, you know, people are in a, in a car club or something like that. are like, oh, man, it would be really great to have this car or that car. Um, that's kind of a silly thing to, to, to point it out that way. But um, when we unite around those things, inevitably those things don't fulfill and they don't lead to a good place. But if that's the centering point, and if our churches are centering around these things that were fueled by anger rather than the gospel, if we're, we're fueled by gossip rather than the gospel, then where we are veering off course drastically. Peter says, instead, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, which is the gospel, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Saying, if you're living in this, inherit- in this community of inheritance, be centered around what Jesus has done. Be centered around what Jesus is doing. Be centered around looking forward to that day when all will be made new, when all will be made right, and you will live before the face of God for all of eternity. So these things, friends, are fruit of the gospel. That because Jesus has made us holy, that he has made us right with the Lord, that he has brought us into covenant relationship with him, we can live a holy life. We can live a life of reverent fear of our Father and our Lord and our King and our Judge. And we can live a life of love towards believers, live a life of love towards the church because we share this same imperishable, undefiled inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us.
that in Jesus Christ, um, you have washed away our sins. And when you look upon us, you see his righteousness and not our failures. May you help us to see ourselves as you see us. May we live as your children, as your ambassadors in this world. May you give us delight and joy in that reality. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.